We're back in Matthew this morning. And I have just loved spending time in Proverbs, but I gotta tell you, I am very excited to be back in Matthew. And the passage we're about to read ends with a string of Jesus' healings. Over the course of the book of Matthew, especially when we get in Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, we're going to be watching Jesus heal over and over and over again. There'll be spotlights on particular healings. But this morning, there's just a big, long string of healings. You'll hear it when I read the passage. And the way I'm going to end our sermon this morning is by asking those of you who would like to be healed to raise your hand. I won't grill you on exactly what it is you're looking for healing from. We won't do medical diagnoses uh, from the pulpit and all the doctors said, amen. But if you got anything, sore back, sore neck, cancer, anything where you would like the people of God to be praying for you and asking God to heal you, at the end of this message, I'm just gonna ask you to put up your hand and a few saints will gather around you. If you're comfortable with that, they'll put their hands on your shoulder and we'll seek God together for his healing of his people, which he loves to do. Same Jesus who healed in the gospel is Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. It may be that over the course of this sermon, some of you are particularly burdened. I know God's gonna heal. I, I want God to heal. I, I have a sense that God is going to heal. Now, those things we always have to be careful with. Uh, God hasn't promised healing to a particular individual at a particular time in the scriptures, and yet he does prompt us to want to do good in prayer for others, and if he prompts you in that way, you shouldn't ignore it. But rather, you should move out in faith to pray that God would heal. If, if you pray for someone hoping they're healed and, and they're not healed, God's not gonna scold you. Uh, rather, though, we want to see situations where God's spirit moves God's people to pray in line with his word, and then many who have anything from a kink in their neck uh, to an infertile womb, to a mind that feels oppressed by the devil's lies. All of those things are in distinct need of prayer. And, and we see in the scripture that prayer doesn't just come from the pastors. It doesn't come from on high. It comes from God's people ministering to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if any of those burdens are gripping you, and if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, we'd love to pray for you. We hope that the believers will pray. But if you're here as an unbeliever and you're like, I'm just sick, I'm, I'm burdened, my body's not working right, my mind's not working right, my soul's not working right, we would love for you to put up your hand and just get the chance to seek God who heals physically, and he often does that as an appetizer for how he wants to heal us spiritually at the deepest levels of our being. So, let's read God's word together, and I'll read God's word. You can pay attention to the whole of it, but especially that last part, obviously, where we see 
Jesus healing. We're in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. If your Matthew is a little foggy and uh, you got Proverbs on the brain and you forgot what Matthew was all about, let me just remind you, Jesus is the King, Son of David. Jesus is God's salvation, the Son of Abraham. Jesus is God coming near, Emmanuel, the one who gets us out of exile from God and brings us close. That's who Matthew's been telling us Jesus is. And then he's been telling us how he got ready for ministry. He got ready for ministry by being filled with the Spirit. John the Baptist baptized him. He was filled with the Spirit. And then being, being tested by the devil. And instead of just being one more leader with lots of spiritual power and no integrity, Jesus showed himself to be a man of spiritual power and perfect spiritual character. Perfect for our salvation. So that Jesus is the one who we now read about, we're beginning this morning his earthly ministry. This is the start of Jesus' ministry. The same way uh, that Spurgeon, who would go on, C.H. Spurgeon, the great British preacher, who would go on to preach to thousands and have his sermons published all over the world, his first sermon started with 80 people that morning and 200 that night. There was something in the first sermon that was a, a portend, a, an appetizer of what was coming. And here in the early ministry of Jesus, we're getting a glimpse of what's just going to come to full flower through the course of the book of Matthew. So let me read Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, he healed them. 
And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask you that you would take my weak mouth and our weak ears and that you would take your strong word and glorify your son. Let us see his glory and we will be changed exceedingly, abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. We pray, Lord, you might even be pleased to reach down this morning and physically heal and cast out all demons. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed, but we often ignore the large ball of fire in the sky. There is overhead from us, just 94 million miles away, a burning ball of fire that is continually keeping us warm all the time. And even though this ball of fire might make us sweat like the Dickens in the middle of the day, we generally don't pay any attention to the sun throughout the day. No one, I don't know anyone who comes to that. I guess if you did just stare at the sun all day, your retinas would be burned and that'd be the end of that. But we do pay particular attention to the sun when it rises. We may drive to a special beach and wait for the sun to just come up over the horizon and light up the sky. We may stand on a particular bridge and wait for the sun to glimmer out over the water and just ignite the morning sky and chase away the darkness with the dawn. And there's something about the sunrise, just seeing a little sliver of the sun, that actually gives us the sweetest picture of the glory of the sun. And what we have in Matthew chapter 4, 12 through 25, what we have in these 14 verses is the sunrise of the earthly ministry of Jesus. As we go through the the book of Matthew, the sun's ministry will shine at full strength. It'll be noonday for a long time as we go through Matthew. But here in Matthew 14, 25, we're essentially having the ministry of Jesus summarized for us. Matthew's introduced him to us. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's Emmanuel. He's going to be the king. He's going to be the savior. He's going to be God with us. He is God with us. But now, Matthew, after introducing who he is, gives us a a glimpse of what he's come to do. And if you just look down at your passage that you read, there's three paragraphs there. And each of those paragraphs highlights a different aspect of what Jesus has come to do. The first highlights his teaching. He boils his whole teaching down into one nugget, one one acorn of truth. The summary of all of his teaching, it'll be expanded throughout the whole of the gospel, but if you wanted to summarize everything Jesus taught, here it is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, in the second paragraph, he summarizes his whole ministry methodology, how he's going to do ministry, what he's going to do in the lives of people. If you've got a red-letter Bible, you just glance down, there it is. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then in that last paragraph, 
There's no summary statement there, but the summary reality is that Matthew sort of takes all of these miracles that we have records of from throughout his life and just says he was just doing them all. And I hope you notice how inclusive it was. It wasn't like you had to have stage four cancer before Jesus would heal you. It was all the afflictions. It was all the diseases. People were coming to him with all their pains. But can you imagine bothering the Son of God for your pains? Oh, he was not bothered. It was exactly what he wanted to do, was to reach out and to touch those with various pains and to heal them. So we're looking at a summary of Jesus' ministry, and it's, it's very important that we get this. That we're, we're not trying to get a, a philosophy of ministry here. We're not trying to get just, a, we're not trying to philosophize about Jesus. What I want us to notice is this is how he touched people. This is how he came into people's lives. The ministry of Jesus was a ministry to people like you and me, people who struggle with sin, people who struggle with disease, people who believe lies, people who need an example to follow, people who feel lost and not sure what to do next. This was the ministry of Jesus. And his ministry came into people's lives and landed in their laps with the teaching of truth, the giving of an example, and abundant miracles that cared for those who needed healing. What I want you to notice is three aspects of Jesus' ministry this morning. The first is he challenged men morally. We'll see that in the first paragraph. That's verses 12 through 17. He called men motivationally. We'll see that in verses 18 through 22. And finally, he cured miraculously. We'll see that in verses 23 through 25. So first, he challenged men morally. And again, we see that in the summary of Jesus' preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's in verse 17. But let's get a little feel for the context in which that nugget of a sermon truth comes out. Let's get a little feel for the context. Uh, right after Jesus has been tempted by the devil, or right after Jesus has been tempted by the devil in Matthew's narrative, what we have is the announcement that Something that happens to us all the time happened to Jesus. He heard some news. It's the most basic human thing. It happens to us all the time. We hear some news. The news he heard, you'll see it there in verse 12, was that John had been arrested. Now, if you're familiar with John, the reason he got arrested is because he was preaching these exact words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We were told that back in uh, Matthew chapter 3. So John's been preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven. He preached it to the wrong guy, the king of the region, and that got him thrown in jail, eventually beheaded. And when Jesus hears that John's in trouble, he withdraws from where Herod is, the man who's giving John so much trouble, to Galilee. Now, really important here, Jesus does not withdraw out of fear. That would be a sin. Jesus withdraws because his time to die hasn't come yet. He's making space to get all his teaching in his life before he dies. He's come to die. He's not here to save his life. He's merely preserving his life so that he can accomplish his ministry before he dies. So he withdraws to Galilee. Now, if you know your geography of Israel, which I'm sure you all do, um, anyway, if you know your geography of Israel, Galilee's up in the north. 
He's been down in the south, Jerusalem, Judah, the capital. Now he's going up north. Now, north, the northern part of Israel was much more mixed than the south. The northern part of Israel was in fact called Galilee of the Gentiles. That is, even though it was technically part of Israel, it was overrun with the nations, with people from other countries. The Gentiles is just a, a term that means the people of all the other nations. And so Jesus goes up into Galilee to this area that's much more diverse, much more, well, slightly, I'm going to use the word cosmopolitan. And he doesn't just land in Nazareth, which maybe you remember was his hometown. But he lands in a little bit of a bigger center named Capernaum. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, Capernaum was a place where people traveled. It was a place where there was a cultural roots out to the different areas. We're going to read later that the word of Jesus' miracles got up to Syria, which is not the next province over, it's the next country over. So Jesus is in a place where a lot more transactions happen, like Louisville. You've got the 64, the 65, the 71 running through town, and so you've got a city that's got a little more traction with the ongoing, with the world around it than maybe someplace like E-Town or Shelbyville. So Jesus lands himself in Capernaum in a place between two different tribal areas, Zebulun and Naphtali, and you might think, oh, he did that for strategic reasons. He wanted to get somewhere where the word would go out. And that may in fact be true. But what we read is that he did it for distinctly theological reasons. He did it because he had come to fulfill a prophecy. He had come to do what had been promised of him 700 years earlier. Jesus' life, he's born in the town they prophesy him in, and then he goes and he situates himself where the prophecy is meant to be fulfilled. And that's why Matthew says to us in verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in the darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What's being said here. What's being said here is that this region could be considered dark. Now, our cultural sensitivities do not like that. To call one group of people dark and another enlightened? Aren't all civilizations and all cultures equal? No. The Bible judges a reason to be either dark or enlightened based on how much receptivity and knowledge they have of God's Word. Galilee of the Gentiles was, where a bunch of place where, was a place where a bunch of people did not know God's word. They did not love God. The, the Jews who were there did not follow God's word. And so it's called Galilee of the Gentiles, and it's a region of darkness. And what brings light to it is Jesus landing there. Jesus, who is the word of God, Jesus who preaches the word of God, Jesus that teaches the word of God, is the one who brings light there. Now, let me be clear about this. Jesus didn't bring light just by showing up and renting a place. Jesus is light, that's true. But he only brings light specifically by opening his mouth and Matthew tells us preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I don't mean to say that Jesus' mighty works and his character weren't light. I just mean if you walked by Jesus on the street in Israel, you would not have a religious experience. If you lived next door to him and never heard him talk, it would not, be like living, it would not feel like you were living close to God. 
The Bible tells us he had no former majesty that we should behold him. What brought the light was when he spoke God's word. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what Jesus does in his opening days of ministry is he plants himself in the darkest place where the word is not known, where the the word is not perceived, and he begins to teach that people ought to turn their lives around. That's what repentance means. They ought to do a 180, that they ought to leave their sin and they ought to trust God. And the logic is you ought to do this because there's new management in the universe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because God's government has now come to rule people. People will no longer be ruled by the devil. The king of heaven has come, and he's taking citizens to be part of his kingdom. And so Jesus calls men to repent. Beloved, this is what's happened in the world since that time. This world, which is under the power of the devil, where each of us, before we're Christians, follow one way or another of believing the devil's lies, who are, in the words of Colossians, in the kingdom of the devil, this world that we're in has been invaded by Christ the King. We're in a world where Jesus Christ has said, I am reasserting my authority. I will be obeyed. I must be followed. If you follow me, you can come be a citizen of my country. If you won't follow me, you will be destroyed. And so here Jesus is announcing his message, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And let me ask you this. Have you ever repented? Have you ever repented? I don't mean have you ever changed something in your life. There's lots of people who've gone from being Buddhist to Hindu, being non-smokers to smokers, smokers to non-smokers. But the change I'm talking about when I'm talking about repentance is going from not worshiping God, worshiping some false God, or just worshiping yourself, to bowing your knee to Jesus as the Lord of the universe and submitting your every thought, word, and deed to Him. Have you ever repented? If you haven't repented, what you'll notice is that what the Bible says about you is true. It says in Romans chapter 3 that before we know Christ, ruin and misery mark our paths. Look around your life. What's the effect you have on other people? Do you improve them, ennoble them, improve their moral character, make them better people, help them worship God? Or do you drag them down? Drag them away from everything that's good and right and holy? If that's you, I want to encourage you to repent and believe, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. You've got to understand how gracious this is. Jesus could steamroll into the universe and say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've all been rebels and now you're dead. But instead, Jesus Christ comes and says, citizenship is available. I will grant amnesty based on my death on the cross to anyone who wants to come into my kingdom. You just need to repent and believe in me. Now let me talk for a second to the long-term members of Emmanuel, or just the members of Emmanuel. Are you still repenting? 
Jesus sums up his ministry. What's the, what's the central truth he's got to pass on? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what often happens in the Christian life is, is we come to know Christ and we repent, and in those early days, there's this big getting rid of the big ones. Quit sleeping around. Quit cussing. Quit doing drugs. But then often what happens is we begin to tolerate what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. Oh, we'd never sleep around. We're not looking at porn anymore. But discontent, anxiety, slander, gossip, unbelief, all of bitterness, all of these things that, that, that do exactly what Romans 3 says sin does. They ruin and misery follows your path. Think about you. Every time you give in to anxiety, what happens? Are people built up? Are they strengthened? Or does ruin and misery come into your marriage, your parenting, your friendships? What happens when you are controlled by grumbling, discontent, anxiety, bitterness, gossip, slander, outbursts of anger, which brings sword thrusts, say the Proverbs, into people's soul. What happens? Well, nothing scandalous happens. You don't make the news. You don't usually get disciplined by the church, but ruin and misery, ruin and misery come into the lives of those around you when you tolerate the smallest of sins, because there are no small sins. Because anything that is not following God, is following the devil. And anything that doesn't follow God's way of life is following paths that bring death and ruin and destruction to those around us. And so there's this incredible offer to you, Emmanuel, to me. You can repent. There's still a day of salvation. We don't have to go on like that. The last thing we want to do in our Christian lives is getting used to sinning, to just get used to the idea that, oh, no one ever gets that much victory. You can't ever really overcome that much. No, Jesus is impressing this upon us as a people. Repent. You can turn. His Holy Spirit will help you. Your mind can be transformed by confession and and repentance. You can be changed if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's never be a church that has most of its repentance in the past, but to be a people who are continually repenting so that we do not bring ruin and misery into our present or, worst of all, Forsake the grace of God by, by not forsaking our sins. Now, after you see that Jesus challenged men morally, you can see that he called men motivationally. He called men motivationally. Two sets of guys in this passage, verses 18 through 22. First, Jesus walks up to Simon Peter and Andrew's brother, and he says these words in verse 9, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they got out a whiteboard and drew out a pros cons chart and prayed over it for a few weeks and then eventually decided this was the way to go. No, verse 20 says immediately 
They left their nets and followed him. And then we read in verse 21 that Jesus does the same thing to James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. He says to them that they should follow him and immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed him. Now we need to say a few things here. Because when you read this, it can almost seem like this is where the idea for Jedi mind tricks comes from. Like Jesus was just walking up to people and saying, you don't want to stay with your family business. I don't want to stay with my family business. You want to follow me. I want to follow you. But that's not what's happening. More than one scholar has pointed out that probably between the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4.11 and the calling of of Andrew and Peter and James and John, most of the events of John 1 through 4 happen. That is, we're not given every detail of Jesus' life here in Matthew. We know we're not given of every detail of Jesus' life in any of the Gospels because John says, if all the things he ever did was written, I suppose all the books in the world could not contain it. So the events of John 1 through 4 roughly happened before Jesus explicitly called these men to join him on his itinerant ministry, which means that Andrew spent the night at Jesus' place, that they heard about Nathaniel knowing Jesus' thoughts, that they saw or heard about Jesus dealing with Nicodemus, that they watched Jesus evangelize or the tail end of the evangelism with the woman at the well that their guilty consciences heard it when John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, Peter and James and John and Andrew had enough knowledge of Jesus by this point in their life that if he were to ever come to them and say, follow me, it was like the best news they'd ever heard. Like, really? Like more? It would be like getting accepted into Harvard if you were into that kind of thing. Or getting accepted into a, a trades apprenticeship if you wanted that kind of a future. It would be like finding out that the best of the best wanted to bring you on board and have you with him. So they know Jesus, they've seen his miracles, they saw him turn water into wine at a wedding, and now he's like, you wanna come? And they're like, done. Sorry, dad, you're going to have to mend this net. Now, second caveat. Although the followers of Jesus in his lifetime left fathers and businesses to follow him, most of us in our day will stay put with our fathers and mothers and businesses to follow him. Because of course, what do we do? We serve slaves, obey your masters as unto the Lord. Most of us live out our Christian life not abandoning natural relationships, but we live out our, our lives following him in the midst of those natural relationships. Okay, so Jesus goes to James and John and Peter and Andrew, and he says, follow me, and they jump up because this is like being, it's like they finding out the sports team you always wanted to play for uh, your whole life just drafted you first and would like to offer you a contract. You're like, yes, I'm going. They, they wanted to be with him. And what I want to ask you this morning is do you have that same awe you maybe once had at the thought of being asked to follow Jesus. I mean, think about it. Every Christian has been asked to come follow the Son of God. 
to be a personal disciple of the king of da- the, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Emmanuel. Emmanuel wants you to follow him. In your daily life, in your daily routine, he wants you to listen to his spirit, to read his word, to hear his gospel proclaimed in the church, to follow him wherever he calls you to. Do you still have a sense of awe and wonder that you have been called to follow him? I think for many of us, what happens in our Christian lives is exactly what happened to Peter when he was enticed to walk on the water. Do you remember the story? Jesus is walking to Peter on the water. Now, that's awesome. And Peter is not, he doesn't just want to write speculations in his diary about how Jesus walked on water. Peter says, call me out of the boat. I want to do it too. He's got the same heart we see here. Follow me, you bet I'll follow you. Get with you, follow you, that's what I want to do. Peter sees Jesus on the water and he goes, that's what I want to do. I want to walk on water too. I don't want to philosophize about you, Lord. I don't want to speculate about you. You can walk on water. I want to walk on water. And Jesus says, well, get out of the boat. And his foot lands and doesn't sink. And there isn't one of those fake poles underneath to make the optical illusion. I mean, he's absolutely walking on the water. And he's thinking to himself, I follow Jesus. The son of David is my God. The son of Israel is my king. Emmanuel is my God. And he is the ruler over the water and I'm walking on the water with him. And then he goes, whoa, those are big waves. And it says that Peter began to look at the waves. And when he began to look at the waves, what happened? He grew very wise in the difficulties of this life. Now he sunk. He went down. He was now a drowning man. Instead of a man rising above it all in the power of the Son of God, he was now a drowning man. And Jesus has to reach up and rescue him. And this is so often what happens in our Christian life. At the beginning of it, follow you, follow Jesus, with you, Jesus, and then things don't go so well with the wife. The roommates turn out to be hypocrites. The church turns out to be very, very, very normal. And by normal I mean hard. And by hard I mean sin. Where there's actually sinners who wanna get all up in your business. And who life would be easier without. And then there's cancer. And there's children and there's heartbreaks, and there's death. And all of a sudden, like Israel long ago, you're going, I wanna go back to Egypt. I wanna go back to where it's easy. You start looking at the waves, and you start sinking in the water. But beloved, I wanna encourage you, we need to stay motivated by this. You have been called to follow Jesus. In no matter what mundane situations you are in, Paul says, even if you're in slavery, he says, there let him remain with God. And we need every morning when we read our Bibles and every time when we speak to Christians and every time we're here on Sunday to recenter ourselves on the reality that we are walking with the Son of God. If you do not recenter yourself on the fact that you are walking with the Son of God, you will get bitter, you will get angry, 
You will get frustrated. You will get nasty. Ruin and misery will follow your way. Because here's the thing. Jesus always makes your life harder. That's part of what's implied in the words follow me. You seen how you see you ever seen how his life went? It wasn't great. They persecuted me. They will persecute you. In this world, you will have tribulations, but through all those tribulations, through all this difficulty, there ought to be the sense unbelievable. As I exercise this patience, as I exercise this forbearance, as I do this job one more day, as I love this people who I'm putting up with one more time, I'm doing it with the Son of God. And He's walking me all the way home to heaven. That's what's so amazing. And He doesn't just walk you all the way to home to heaven. He says, I want you to be a fisher of men. I want you to go get more. I want you to bring others in. Now listen to this. Here's these guys, they're, 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 they're fishing, they're, they're, they're mending their nets, they're doing their daily chores, and then they've got this chance to follow Jesus, to go with him. And what's he gonna do with them? He's going to make them into those who gather others. Here we are in this world. Look at the world we're in right now, Emmanuel. It's off the rails. You can't define the simplest realities on the planet, they're gone. People are running headlong into perversion and wickedness and immorality everywhere. And he says, but I'd like you to bring some others in to follow me. I'd like to incorporate you in my plan to get lives on track with God. There's many in a world like this where everything's so crazy and confusing and it feels so chaotic and so sinful where you say, what do I do that would be worth anything in life? Make men disciples. Catch men and women for God. But most Christians go like this. They go, oh, I'm supposed to be a fisher of men. It would be great to be a fisher of men. I'd like to bring more people to Christ. But you know, I don't know how to answer people's questions. And I don't know how to present the gospel systematically enough. And I don't know how to be a disciple maker. Let me ask you this. How many of you came to Christ because you had your own personal philosopher who had the answers to every question you ever asked? Show of hands. India Bufkin had her own personal philosopher. I'm assuming that's James. Praise God, there's one of you. And thank you, James. Anyone who's not converted, James Bufkin is just over here and would like to talk to you and answer all your questions after the service. The rest of you had a mom or a dad or a friend that knew a few things about the Bible. The rest of you got a sermon link that you watched or listened to, or you got a Bible, or you were in a Bible study, or you were in a small group, or you joined some Christian who had a hobby, and you got talking about Jesus, and as you saw the Son of God, what happened? He set the hook, and he reeled you in, and he brought you to faith. Beloved, do not make man fishing more complicated than it is. You follow Jesus. Ask a friend if they'll read the Bible with you. Let Jesus do his own advertising. Let Jesus do his own persuading. Read the Bible with someone. Invite them to a Bible study. Invite them to attend church with you. Invite them to a hobby that has nothing to do with the Bible with you and spend time with them. 
And then be a real Christian in the midst of those things. And we will find the fish coming in. Because fishing for men is not more complicated. It's not as complicated as we think. It's a matter of you following and you inviting and Jesus drawing in. Third point. He cured miraculously. He cured miraculously. I heard one person say once that if you were to take the miracles out of the New Testament or out of the Gospels, well, the Gospels would about disappear. The miracles of Jesus are not a cherry on top of the milkshake of his life. They are the bread and butter of his ministry. He is continually healing, casting out demons, doing works of power. And someone, of course, if you're from a Bible-centered background, you'll say, yes, but he preached. Yes, he did. But believe it or not, there are people with problems so significant that they don't think the next thing they need in life is a sermon. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Jesus was aware that as they walk through life, many people are primarily concerned with crippling back pain, with the lump in their breast, with the shaking in their hands, with the memory loss in their minds, with the satanic dark thoughts that will not leave them. That's where many, many people live. And Jesus did not walk into the world and say, put all that aside, put all that aside, and listen to my sermon. Oh, he preached sermons. What are, they, what are my first two points? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me. And what did he do? He did a lot of teaching. But he did a lot of touching and healing of those who were sick. It's been pointed out on more than one occasion that Reformed Christianity does extremely well among the educated and the middle class. And Pentecostalism often sweeps the poorest regions and poorest countries. That's a shame. Because I think that the knowledge that Reformed theology brings is the need of every man. But it's not often the starting point in every person's life. Very often, the first time people encounter God is when he moves to heal them physically or to cast out a demon in their life experientially so they are restored to a sound mind. Now, this is not the enemy of preaching. In, in I believe it's Acts chapter 3, Peter heals a lame man. And when the lame man's healed, what does Peter do once there's a crowd gathered around? He preaches that gospel. And healing is not salvation. Just because people are healed doesn't mean they're saved. But healing is a lovely appetizer to the main course of salvation. Healing displays God's compassion and his power 
that compassion and power that's most finally revealed in the death of Jesus on the cross for sinners and his resurrection to bring us into new life. Beloved, I don't have time to go through every detail of this with you, but when you go back and read this this afternoon, would you just notice really carefully everywhere the, the word about Jesus goes when he heals? When he heals, it says the word got up to Syria. That's not like the gospel going from Kentucky to Indiana. That's like the gospel going from Kentucky to Canada. That's crossing national borders. That means that he healed and the Syrians heard about it and they brought their healing down to Galilee to Capernaum to have Jesus heal more. And then it goes on and it says, and people from Jerusalem came and Judea came and it says from across the Jordan. Now, I don't have time to do geography this morning, but here's the deal. Here's Israel. Jesus is up north. They're flooding at him from, the, from Jerusalem. They're flooding at him from Judea. They're coming from across the Jordan, a place called Perea. They're coming from the other country called Syria. Gentiles are coming from northern Israel. The nations are gathering because this guy can take your cancer away. Because this guy can heal every pain. Now he doesn't just let himself settle in as a healer. He uses the crowd to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry, no one's walking away from teaching here. But you tell me what would happen if Emmanuel Baptist Church was a place where people were constantly walking through life going, is there anyone sick? Is there anyone in need? Is there any place where the Spirit of God is clearly needed to deliver people from the power of the devil? We are going to pray that God works healings in our midst. Will God heal every single person? No, he won't. That's the clear pattern of the Bible. Will he heal more than if we didn't pray? Oh, yes, he will. Oh, yes, he will. And if crowds were to, were, to, were, were, were to come with mixed motives, some wanting bread, some wanting healing, some wanting to have no interest in Jesus, what would we do then? We'd preach the gospel and sift the crowds. But oh, I would love something to wake up this secular slumber. I would love something that would wake up this dead, tired, spiritually disinterested nation. And if God would do it through granting more miracles in our midst, I would be singing and dancing hallelujah every time I got to preach the gospel to someone new. Let's pray for each other. I warned you what would happen if you put up your hand. Some people will gather around you. But we would love the privilege of praying for you. Don't think, oh, my sickness is too small. Don't think like that. Remember, you see all the text, any pain, all pains. Don't think your disease is too big. Don't think God won't be good if he doesn't heal me. He may have good purposes in leaving you sick. But he loves to heal. He loves to heal people. So if you would want someone to pray for you, would you put up your hand? Put them way up. Way up. Okay, now, those of you who are burdened to pray, look around, maybe get up from your seat, put yourself next to someone, and let's pray.